Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. This is a podcast about the rapid change we're seeing in the legal industry. We'll focus on legal technology, knowledge management, law libraries, automation, and the business of law. Our guest today is Gino Grady, the Senior Director of Research and Knowledge at DLA Piper and author of the Dewey B Strategic blog, one of the most widely read legal blogs. Gene is a legend in the law library and knowledge management world, and she's won nearly every relevant award in the books. Our discussion today is about how Jean got into her role as a library and knowledge management executive at one of the largest law firms in the country, as well as where she thinks law practice and legal technology are going. Thanks for joining us. So, Gene, uh, I want to thank you on behalf of Case Text for uh, agreeing to join us on our Case Text podcast. It's a real honor to have you as someone who is out front as a librarian in this industry. So thank you very much. Well, to be asked. Thank you. So, Gene, I want to just launch right into it. Um, you know, uh, the listeners of our podcast will know that you are very prolific in terms of what you write in speaking, in podcasts, and other things. I have a lot of questions, but let me just get right into uh, the origins of the famous Gino Grady. Uh, how did you get into this? I mean, you are, you know, one of the most prominent uh, librarians, law librarians out there. Uh, you're on the board of the AAWL. You know, you, you speak at all kinds of conferences, whether they're they're KM or library or otherwise. How did you get started? Um, you, you know, as a as a uh, investigator and a young librarian. Well, I uh, actually I was when I was in law school, I was always somewhat interested in law, and I thought about going to law school right after college, but I didn't. I worked for a few years, and all of my jobs were law related. And one of the most interesting jobs I had was. Uh, I was an investigator in the Brooklyn DA's office, and one of the things I discovered was that I had really good investigative skills, and part of that is also intuition, but I liked um, research involving records, and I didn't really have the kind of skills to pursue um, some kinds of research that I wanted to pursue. And one day somebody said to me, you know, you should get an MLS. And I had never associated librarianship with actual research. I had thought of librarians as catalogers and taxonomists more in behind the scenes and hadn't actually thought of the research side of, of uh, librarianship. Right. And so right. I almost immediately went into an MLS program and the first job I got was at Pace Law School as a reference librarian. And what was it, your, was what, what was it your, your dream to do? I mean, to go to, uh, to get your MLS and start at Pace. I mean, what was your vision then as a librarian at a law school? I actually didn't have one. I mean, I, I went to, when you're in an academic environment, upward mobility requires a, a law degree. So that I immediately began thinking about getting a law degree. And so I, you know, I applied to Fordham Law School, went to Fordham Law School. And during that transition period, I transitioned from academic to law firms because I was going to go to school in Manhattan. And so I got jobs in some law school, um, law firms in Manhattan. 
and they were just wonderfully excited because the pace of activity in a law firm yes. and an academic environment are so different because right, right, right. In, in a law firm, you are dealing with deadlines and real-time issues. And, and I will never forget, I think I had just become a librarian when some of the big, the, the earlier big tax reforms were happening, like ERISA and FRIPTA and other things. And the, the, the lawyers would literally be standing at my desk, hysterical, and this is before the internet, and we would have to have line standers go to different agencies in D.C. Wow. to pick up documents wow. and then have them faxed or FedEx to us. I mean, this was, we, our jobs have gotten so much easier by the kind of technology we have today. So I, I sort of, as I always joke to my colleague, Ron Friedman, we entered, we started our careers before there was the World Wide Web or even Post-its. Sure. I mean, it's just, everything has changed dramatically in the past 30 years. And, you know, Gina, at what point did you start, uh, you know, being out front as a librarian? At what point did you really start thinking about the industry? And, you know, I'll refer to an interview you, you provided, um, you know, maybe about a year and a half ago. Uh, at what point did you start viewing yourself as a knowledge strategist? Uh, you know, I think I didn't think I had come up with the word, the phrase "knowledge strategist." I do use on my blog, so I, I formalized it in in 2011 when I started my blog. But I had always been aware, and I would say this would go back to my first job as a director at the firm Shea and Gould, where I knew that they wanted me to do non traditional things. Outside of they want, of course, they wanted the library in order. But one of the first things they asked me to do was to create a work product database, which back in those days was basically a, uh, a brief bank. And so I actually created a very, very early brief bank. Uh, but I didn't do it in isolation. It wasn't a technology project. I worked very closely with a young partner who helped me understand what his needs were, and he knew what documents were valuable and how we should approach it. And my first uh, KM project was incredibly successful because I never viewed it as completely where technology was the only solution. Right. It was always a very important human factor to it, and having the ultimate end users had to be very involved in the process of developing the solution. So that really influenced the way I have approached a, a, a wide variety, and KM has expanded dramatically over the years. Um, but when did I become more... Um, Vocal. I mean, I, I have been speaking on programs since my early career, probably back in the 1980s. But I think one of the things I noticed, um, you know, say in the early 2000s, was that many of the people who were getting visibility for KM and even in librarianship were men. And there were not many women writing blogs. And I kept saying to myself, somebody should do this. And you know, I, I guess I was also at a point in my personal life where my kids were old enough that I had a little bit of bandwidth to start writing at right. night. And so I launched the blog um, and it has been successful beyond my wildest dreams because I honestly had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know where my next topic was going to come from. 
And I, you know, I actually think, um, I, because I had so many years of experience and I had a, a very long view of the evolution of technology tools and legal publishing, I realized that that gave a very, very valuable perspective, not only to librarians, but also to, uh, legal technology right. companies and legal publishers. Right. Right. And have you been surprised at the, the very fast, um, and very robust rise of KM, or has that been something that, that you, you've seen coming for decades at this point? No, I mean, that's exactly what I was saying. Librarians are knowledge managers. That's right. ultimately what they do. Right. But I, again, I think, and I, I, I have to be very honest, I actually do attribute this to, to subconscious sexism. Uh, I think as librarians were viewed as, as having something to do with information and information technologists in law firms, largely men, librarians, largely female. Interesting. I think there was an unconscious, we will have him, her report to him. No one ever said, is this a standalone, do, do, do these people have some vision and some voice that needs to be higher in the organization. And I think, unfortunately, that tended to be the, the or, that's how the organization chart fell out for 20 years. And I actually think it wasn't good for law firms because librarians have deep insights into contents into, and into lawyers' yes. workflow. Yes. And I think having a dominant voice of the technologist maybe was not so good. And let me just point to another thing. Yes. When I came to DC, I got involved because I was at a firm where there were actually several innovative people at the firm. Ron Friedman, who is now at Prism, uh, you know, he has the Prism blog, and David Johnson, who was an early pioneer in what were sort of like chat rooms for lawyers, and he created Counsel Connect on the American legal uh, on the American lawyer platform. We were having these very innovative discussions about the transformation of legal practice and hyperlinks and things like that, embedded documents <laughs> right. before right. before the World Wide Web existed. And there used to be a group of lawyer technologists, knowledge managers who would get together and they were called the Lawyers Technology Roundtable. And what is shocking to me, this is almost, you know, over 20 years ago, mm -hmm. almost every major firm was represented in that group. And yet law firms didn't start to take innovation seriously until the recession of 2007. Right. They all, every law firm had these voices crying in the wilderness saying, we can change the way we're working. We can start project management. We can start uh, knowledge management initiatives. But there really wasn't a lot of institutional support. And that's really sort of a tragedy. And do, as a result of that, do you feel that librarians are kind of being left out of this new innovative movement in uh, in favor of this newfangled kind of uh, KM position? And I don't say newfangled no. in, a, in a pejorative way. But I mean, it is you know, relative to librarians. I mean, certainly knowledge management as a profession is is really brand new. Well, 
I would actually even disagree with that. I think now I think librarians have always been doing doing knowledge management. I am right. seeing greater visibility for librarians. I would say in the past two or three years, more firms are looking at the opportunity to uh, raise their librarians to the C level and give them opportunities. I mean, because it's it's actually good for the firm because yes. librarians have a, a very broad view of the landscape of information. And so many business processes involve information these days. I mean, I don't just, it used to be 30 years ago, I bought information primarily for the young associates because the consumers of information, we were giving them case law and sometimes news, but that was primarily what we were in charge of. Sure. And over the years, as you know, we were all, you know, many of us were bringing business intelligence into law firms long before it was recognized. There were primitive systems like Dialog, uh, which had thousands of little databases where you could get business intelligence and they were not very easy to use, but we were the people who could set up alerts and, and track information in advance of events. So, you know, now obviously this has all exploded. Um, I, I think that the, the other really important justification for having knowledge managers is the emergence of, 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 uh, big data right. and algorithms because right. If you do not understand the parameters of the data, the quality of the data, that could lead to disastrous results. And so we are now seeing the emergence of dashboards where you're going to take internal data and marry it to external data. Well, who is going to actually be the one who can ask the questions about the quality and the source of the external information data? I don't think there is anyone else in law firms better positioned to understand that than the people who have been living in the information e ecosystem for you know their entire career. You know, I want to so, follow mean, up on that and I want to follow up on kind of, you know, you're, you're sagging into, you know, the future of this, right? Where this is mm -hmm. going. I want to follow up on Sorry, but what, no, 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 that, no, that's exactly where I want to go next. I want to cover one thing that you said though that was very interesting to me and it was the fact that there were all of these voices in these law firms that were crying out for this innovative change, but the only thing that really caused this this change to be affected at these firms was the the Great Recession, right? 2007, 2008. Why do you think that was the case, and why do you think it took this this real kind of emergency on the client side to get these firms moving? Uh, law firms, law firms are institutionally backed. Let me, no, let me not say law firms. The law <laughs> is inherently a backward-looking <laughs> system. Right, right. It's, yeah, it's necessarily. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, and I just think, you know, the probably the, I, the most influential law firms have set the tone for how, how important change is. And I think the... the Probably the firms that were making money, no matter what their processes, no matter what their inefficiencies, everybody was looking to them for leadership. And it certainly, it suddenly, I think, became evident that every law firm had to figure out their own solution, that, that what was working at the top of the AM 100 was not going to yes. work in the middle. Yes. And it, everybody had to just stop doing a lockstep approach to planning. 
Uh, and, you know, another thing I heard that was, I thought was very, it totally shocked me. I heard uh, Bruce McEwen from um, Adam Smith Esquire speaking once. And here's how he described law firms. He said, law firms are basic. The current partnership model is law firms voluntarily exist until December 31st. They distribute their profits. <laughs> they decide to come back into business January right, right, 1. Right. I had never heard of such a model, but just if that has actually been the effective mindset, how do you ever plan for tra- long-term transformational change if the only thing you're thinking about is the end of the year profits? And then I guess we all go back to blaming um, Stephen Brill and the American Law Profits Per Partner metric for, right. for creating this That's terrible right. system where everybody felt locked into to one kind of metric. Sure. Um, but but that was a stunning thing for me. And it really, I, I've been pondering that. How do you break law firms out? How, how do you create a, a, a social contract among lawyers that they're not individuals who are running their own business, but they actually are wedded to an institution with that they will, that they should be caring about even after they retire. I mean, you know, I was going to say back when I, when I started in the early nineties, I was actually at a firm that had never had a lateral partner. That was a completely yeah. different kind of partnership. That's than amazing. That's amazing. I mean, that's, yeah. that's unheard of. Uh, so, do, you know, do you think that right now, ultimately, it's the money, it's the client that um, really causes that innovative change? Or are you seeing more hope and more, um, you know, more indications or traces of your counterparts at the heads of, uh, you know, the biggest and most prominent firms in the United States being permitted the room to make these big changes? Or does it still kind of the old adage of the client dictates? Well, I think I think it, the clients will always have a big influence. But I also think, again, I think there has to be more of a partnership between the people on the administrative side and, as I said, the, the partners and the lawyers themselves, because we can't operate in a vacuum. Right. And so I think that law firms need to create financial incentives that give lawyers the bandwidth so that, you know, say innovation time is treated like pro bono time. It is valuable to the firm and you, you lawyers get some kind of credit for engaging in innovation projects and spending time helping create new solutions. Cause I think we can have better solutions if we have lawyer engagement in those solutions. Do you, do you think this is going to change it? This is kind of moving, uh, this is me asking you to take out your crystal ball, Gene, and kind of look into the future here. But you know, uh, uh, a kind of a uh, transitional question is, do you already see this changing with the younger generation of lawyers? Or does it seem to you from your vantage point that the younger generation of lawyers is kind of just being brought in and, you know, in a way swallowed whole by these large institutions and uh, inhibited from having the ability to be innovative and, and bring in or spot new technology? I, I, def- I think there are younger lawyers who are absolutely much more attuned or have been, you know, they, they've, they've lived in, in a sea of technology their entire lives. So I think they will be less intimidated by change. They will be less intimidated by technology. And, you know, like, you know, I belong to the baby boomer generation. I am in the generation that's retiring. And I actually think that when, as law firms turn over, 
to uh, the next generation and and the and maybe even the, the generation after that, you know, the extras when they come in and are taking over, the millennials they are probably the people who are going to drive, you know, a, a, an accelerated change. Uh, you know, the other thing I, I think is that maybe law firms will change the way they hire. It might not be a bad thing for law firms to do something like secondments to innovative organizations. You know, like say. Uh, you know, an, an associate gets to go and spend three months at a place like Case Text, you know, to learn about the innovative processes. I mean, I think that would be a great thing to have some legitimate career path where you are moving between the practice of law and an innovation environment. Do you think that is the, the kind of thing that we'll see, in, you know, from the legal industry? And by legal industry here, I really mean. Uh, you know, AM 200 in the next 10 years? I mean, where, where do you think? I do. Yeah. I, I, I'm very optimistic because I'm seeing lots of firms em- embracing um, innovation and, and, and creating new initiatives. You know, I don't, they're not necessarily announcing things to the public, but I am aware of a lot of activity going on both at my own firm and at other firms where there is a, where there is a serious embrace of, of change and reinvention. Where do you see, and my, my question is about to be, where, where do you see legal technology going in the next 10 years? I, I uh, have seen and heard uh, your previous interviews from you, Gene, where you talk about, um, you know, generally where you see it going with respect to predictive technology, you know, tools that, that, um, you know, match patterns for you, you know, tools that could, that could, uh, work with a lot of the, the large data sets that law firms deal with. Um, you know, in addition to that, and, you know, maybe even delving into that, where do you see legal technology going in 10 years in a way that it could really change the way that law is practiced? Well, you know, I, I think we will stop referring to AI as something apart and magical. Right, I think right. AI is just going to be embedded in everything. Yep. I think probably everybody will have an AI task assistant and no one's going to even bat an eye. It's going to be sort of like having a wristwatch back in the, the 30s. You know, right. <laughs> yeah, here's my here's my digital. Here's my here's my my bot, you know. Right. So I think that it's going to become more commonplace, less threatening. You know, I, I sort of, one of the models I used to think about this is I think lawyers have been very threatened by technology. But, you know, I, my husband was an architect and he learned architecture using a slide rule. And, and he used to say to me, the difference between practicing architecture using a slide rule and using, um, was ACAD, the, 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 te- the software, right. you could do, compl- you could build completely kinds of buildings once you empowered yourself with the technology. And I think somewhat that is where lawyers are now. Yes, we had legal research that enabled us to do research more quickly and get to precedence more quickly. But now we have, we are seeing these streams of different kinds of data coming into law firms where I think lawyers are going to be able to, uh, you know, embrace, you know, really deep analysis. But they're, again, they're going to have to be trained somewhat in data science. Uh, they're going to have to have a different kind of uh, you know, how, how, who's going to teach lawyers how to deal with contractual issues with, with, with blockchain? There's so many new things coming. Right. Um, you know, I think, I think technology is going to be woven into the law 
in many ways that that we're not entirely understanding now. Um, so I just think that there's just going to be uh, you know lots of lots of change. But again, getting back to the predictive, I, I also see, you know, as we're competing for information, um, you know, we're going to have these sort of digital seismographs out in the universe trying to give us the signals to tell us where is going to be the next opportunity for, you know, uh, for what are, what are the emerging areas of controversy where we might find clients either in a new issue or in a new a new industry or a new geography. I absolutely think that there are going to be very sophisticated technologies that are going to have to be um, calibrated to the talents within the law firm and and the and the uh, the practice groups within the law firm. Oh, and I, you know, maybe that's another change is that maybe in some ways practice groups are going to become less distinct. There's going to be probably more blurring of practice groups as technology weaves so many things together. Do you foresee a future where there are kind of, uh, there, there's a group of, let's say, resident technologists, you know, you might have your, uh, your librarians, your knowledge management folks, and I know there's some controversy as to splitting those up, uh, and then your third group of folks who are, you know, maybe developers and data scientists and software engineers um, you know, most likely former litigators who now do that kind of work, engineering, that just become the kind of norm at law firms? I do. And I think, I think um, Richard Susskind has described that exact thing as the, the, um, the legal technologist. Uh, I, I, it went right out of my head. But he, he has envisioned that lawyer technologist role. And I, I agree with that. And, you know, I, I often talk about the Apple store and the genius bar as being my model of where law firms should be. I, I would like to see us have big open innovation spaces for collaboration. And, you know, I, I actually am for having people with different knowledge sets work together. I think that would be a great thing. It's, it's harder to do it when you're in a virtual environment. And I happen to be in a very large firm that's spread out over many places, but I, I actually believe we should have either physical or virtual collaboration spaces for many kinds of stakeholders. I think that is how we're, we're going to really drive innovation. Gene, you, you seem like you'd find a, a, a great home here in Silicon Valley. Uh, I hear, I hear exactly those kinds of, that, oh, Gene, <laughs> gladly, gladly we'll do that. But no, those exact ideas are ones that I hear uh, very regularly, uh, here in San Francisco and Silicon Valley. It's very promising that a leader at, at, you know, one of the largest law firms, uh, is, uh, is persuaded as to that. I want to kind of go full circle, uh, and go back and this will be, you know, my last question here, although I was a, uh, uh an attorney. So you can't ever really trust that it will be my last question, but <laughs> let me, let me try to make it my last question. And that is, um, what are some encouraging trends you're seeing with respect to this divide between librarians and, and cam you identified one, and that is that in the last two years or so you're seeing more firms promote or trust or kind of, um, you know, give a lot more authority to their librarians. What else are you seeing with respect to the future of librarians um, in the next 10 years? 
Well, I, I think nobody is going to be comfortable turning the practice of law over to algorithms, you know, and I think we are great at being human interveners between technology lawyers and workflow and helping figure out what is that right balance of all of those different components. Um, you know, I, I actually think the uh, analytics products have been a terrific opportunity for highlighting the expertise of information professionals because really um, somebody who did, you know, a technologist, and, I, and I've seen some large firms make some what I would consider to be hilarious mistakes having technologists select information products because if you don't know what the current marketplace looks like and you think that this new gee whiz product is really great, you can invest a lot of money in a, a really redundant or a really marginal product that just has good PR, a good PR machine. So I, I think Sorry. Yeah, no, no. You know, what I was going to say was, uh, you know, I had this great conversation that was uh, a part of a ARC webinar a few weeks ago, and uh, the exchange was with Meredith Williams over at Baker Donaldson, the CKO mm -hmm. over there, and I, yeah. I think she had a very, uh, you know, elegant way of of articulating exactly what you said, and that is that, you know, too many pure technologists or pure kind of, uh, you know, algorithm uh, um, minded folks are are just looking for technology solutions without business solutions in mind and how the business solution needs to be out front, right? You can't just be led by and trust wholeheartedly algorithms without knowing what the algorithms are there to solve. Right. And, and, and that goes too for, for data quality and analytics. I mean, you can't just buy analytics without understanding or how are they how are they how are they selecting the data how are they crafting the parameters how are they you know there's lots of products now that that say they're going to tell you the how many case outcomes of a certain kind they were well pretty much every vendor is using a different technique so you better well be looking under the hood and making sure you understand how that vendor is coming to the conclusion that that you know this judge you know uh, rules this way so many times you know is it based on a semantic analysis is it based on the presence of keywords we most people are not most technologists do not know to ask those questions and so I think you know we are sort of like the the consumer on the consumer side I think we are also in a great position to make the the vendors become much more transparent about what they are selling to us, how they are um, selecting the data and aggregating the data and coding the data. Is it all done by machine? Is it is it human plus machine? We are the people that really understand the information quality issues and information quality is gonna make or break law firms and cases in the future. Gene, I, I really appreciate uh, your time in, in joining us for this podcast. I think that's really great advice. Uh, there's there's so much to learn in what we've uh, what, what you've told us in the last uh, you know 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Gene, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Enjoyed the conversation.
Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you. As you know, we're just starting out and highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at Anand at Casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer, and check us out at ModernLawyerPodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.